I think I might try to butter you mothers up and get some extra appreciation because I am aware that 40 weeks is longer than nine months. I know that, okay? So, so yeah, nine months my tail. 40 weeks, brother. And let me say, too, and we want to be careful, Mother's Day can be tough for some people. If you've lost your mother, um, it could be hard. If you don't know your mother, it could be hard. If you've lost kids, if you've never had kids, Mother's Day can be tough. So we do this to celebrate motherhood. And if this is hard for you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, that that's true of your life. And there's grace. Uh, so we recognize that this is not all bells and whistles for everybody. So, Okay. <laughs> it ain't flashy. It ain't may not even be proper. But I want to start the message. Are you ready for the hook? Because you always got an attention getter at the beginning of the message, right? Something to... <gasps> I'm going to give you two, not one, but two definitions. I know, I know. I can hardly contain myself. Don't get too excited. I know that definitions usually get you going at 11 in the morning, right? A cup of coffee and a couple of definitions to get your day going. I wanted to find two words for you. Okay? Let's see if I got these set up right. Let's see if this thing will work. The first word is sovereign. Now, we've talked about sovereignty this morning. And there's two forms that the word sovereign takes. The first is a noun. And a noun is a person, place, or thing. So, so as, a, as, as a person, place, or thing, sovereign means supreme ruler, especially a monarch. That's sovereign as a noun. Now, as an adjective, so I unpacked my adjectives. An adjective describes a noun, right? Okay. Sovereign can also be an adjective. And as an adjective, it means possessing supreme or ultimate power. We sing in our song, Sovereign in the mountain air, Sovereign on the ocean floor, With me in the calm, with me in the storm. Sovereign in my greatest joy, sovereign in my deepest cry, with me in the dark, with me at the dawn. Now, when we sang sovereign to God, we were proclaiming that God is our supreme ruler. We were proclaiming that God possesses supreme or ultimate power. He's in control and reigning over everyone and everything. So that's sovereign. Definition one. Now, <clears throat> our second definition is for the word, the word perverted. <laughs> I wish I was kidding, but nothing like a good Mother's Day message about perversion, huh? Now, your minds probably go to a certain place when you see the word perverted. And if you do, you're probably perverted. But um, do you know what the actual definition of the word perverted is? I did not. I mean, I always just went one direction with it. Okay? Perverted. It doesn't even sound right. It sounds bad coming off the tongue. Let me help you out. Now... Perversion or perverted can actually be a pathology. And since I just graduated college, I can use word like pathology and sound like I know what I'm talking about. And as a pathology, it means changed, changed to, or being of an unnatural or abnormal kind. Okay? For example, you may have a perverted interest in death. That's abnormal. You with me? Now, to define the word simply, to define the word perverted in a simple manner, it means turned from what is right, wicked, misguided, or distorted. So, to be perverted 
means to be turned from the right way, the right way of or the right way for something. Turned from the right way of or for something. Now, Tim Keller gives us a little more clarity on this word when he says that perverted means it's a desire to do something for no other reason than because it is forbidden. It is a joy in wrongdoing for its own sake. So that's perverted. I want to do it just because it's wrong. You with me? So, it's a good way to think about it. Now, why would I start this message with these two definitions? We're going to be in Romans 7, verses 6 through 13 this morning. And I want you to think about these two concepts, sovereign and perverted. I want you to think about them separately. And I want you to think about them in conjunction with each other. What is sovereign? What is perverted? What happens if sovereignty is perverted? What about if the one who is sovereign is perverted? That's going to be a rough one, isn't it, Rebecca? Sorry. I'm just, just can I keep that up there? I'm sorry. Okay. What about if the one who is sovereign is perverted? Hmm. Let's dig in here. We'll get that. We need a good screenshot of this. We can put this up on our church page. You know, the picture from the back, everybody's bagging perverted. <laughs> That's good stuff. Okay. <clears throat> We're going to read the Word of God. So if you could and would, would you stand with us as we read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let me pray. God, these are good, big, strong concepts for us to get a hold of this morning. And I pray that you would help us to do that by the power of your Spirit. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Work on a quick review here. Uh, we won't linger too long in the review, but if you haven't been with us, we're in the book of Romans. I've been in the book of Romans for almost a year now. And we've seen, we finished with two points of our outline. The first point was sin, the need for being right with God. And what we said was everybody, from Adam until the end of time, except for Jesus, was born with sin. Everybody's a sinner. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Everybody is a sinner, born a sinner, conceived in sin. And so in that sin, they have a need for being made right with God. And the overall theme of Romans is how to be right with God. Point two is justification by faith, the means for being right with God. There's only one way to be made right with God, and that is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus came was sinless when He was born. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life, never sinned, fulfilled the law, and then He died on the cross. And we'll talk about that in a second. I just want to jump into propitiation. But He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And if we believe that He died, was resurrected, and that He's reigning in heaven right now, and that He died for our sins and forgives us, that's what it means to be justified. And now we're in point three, which is blessings, the results of being made right with God. And I have a real problem. It seems like every passage I prepare for 
is the most important passage. It seems like everyone's the biggest one. Everyone's the most. I know every, every week I come in, I'm like, this is so big. This is so important. Let me tell you what I'm about to say. We're almost into Romans 8. And Romans 8 is probably the highest point of Scripture as far as telling us who we are in Christ and the blessings that we have for being made right with God. But let me say this. If you don't get Romans 7, you'll never fully comprehend Romans 8. So Romans 7 is so important. So important. I cannot overemphasize what, what we talked about two weeks ago, what we're talking about today, and what we'll talk about at least next week, maybe for two weeks, but at least next week, irreplaceable if you're going to understand Romans 8 and get the full grasp of it. So again, I want you to engage. I want you to understand that Romans 7... Romans 8 is like gasoline for your car. Romans 7 is opening up the door so you can put the gasoline in. Gasoline's great. It makes your car run, but if you don't open the fuel door, you can't get the gas in. That's what Romans 7 is. So it's very, very important. Let's dictate it. That would be great. So we're in Romans 7. Uh, so we're in blessings, and we'll get to the other points when we get there. But right now we're in point three, blessings, the results of being made right with God. We've talked about Asian Station. For those of you who aren't with us, you're not going to understand this completely, but let me try to give you a brief overview. Expiation is the process of God taking our sins away from us. Ex, exit, away from, to leave. Expiation is God taking our sins away from us. Propitiation is God pouring out His wrath for those sins onto Jesus. He put the sins on Jesus as He hung on the cross, and He punished Jesus for our sins. That's propitiation. Imputation is God giving us something that wasn't ours. We were imputed Adam's sin, which made us sinners, but we're also imputed, if we have faith in Jesus, the very perfection of Christ. God gives us Christ's perfection. That's imputation. And that leads us to a state of justification, which means I can stand in God's presence rightfully. Just what we sang this morning. I can approach an unapproachable God because I am justified. Once we are justified, once our salvation is assured, we begin the process of sanctification, which is a process we will be on until we see Jesus face to face, of growing, becoming more Christ-like. It's not doing better so God will love you more. It's not doing better so that God will accept you. God accepted you at justification. Sanctification is the process of working that acceptance out. And then salvation. We were saved before the foundation of the world. We were saved. We are being saved and we will finally be saved. And that's salvation. And when I say saved, I mean saved from the wrath of God. Somebody says, what do I want to be saved from? You want to be saved from the wrath of God. Because it's going to be awful. We talked about that a long time ago. Romans 3. Romans 1, 2, and 3 actually. So anyway, and all of this revolves around our union with Christ. We have been crucified with Him. We have been and will be raised with Him so that we might walk in newness of life now. That's where we've been. Now, as we start in on Romans 7 today, last week we focused on this, or not last week, two weeks ago, the last message, we focused in on this verse. Let me read it, and I'll give you a brief recap of it. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What we saw when we looked at this, and I'm giving this a brief synopsis, was the fact that the law, although used against us, and we'll talk a lot about that today, the law is not the main problem that we have to deal with. Remember, if you were here two weeks ago, the story about the guy whose daughter broke her leg and they took her to the doctor and they actually found out she had leukemia? Her broken leg wasn't the main problem. Her leukemia was the main problem. What the law does is points us toward the physician, and the physician looks at us and says, you've got a blood-borne problem, and it's sin. Sin is your problem. Your broken leg's not your problem. The sins that you commit are not the problem. The problem that you have is that sin is in you. 
The law shows us the real problem, the deep-seated problem, and that problem is sin. We saw that our hearts, according to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, are desperately sick and deceitfully wicked. And it's because of sin, which is innate in all humans since Adam's sin in the garden. The law shows us our problem, and our problem is sin. And that should be a good thing, right? That the law shows us our sin? Well, yes and no. That's what we'll talk about today. Let's look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Real quick, coveting is wanting something that belongs to somebody else. Okay? Um, you mothers that came up here, anybody covet the flower that somebody else picked? Huh? I wanted that one. I carried a baby for 40 weeks. I should get that one. Coveting is, I see your doll and I want it. I'm not happy that you have that doll. I want that doll. Okay? That's coveting. So when you see the word covetousness, that's what it means. Now, we've had a few messages in the past when we came to a but in a thought progression. And usually when we talked about those buts, it was a good thing. Right? Everybody's you all are perverted. You know that? Usually they say, but God, or but you were washed, you were cleansed. Here, this but is bad. Bad but. But sin. The law is good and shows us our sin. The law shows us that we shouldn't covet. But sin takes the law and sees it as an opportunity. An opportunity for what? To produce in me the very thing the law says I should not do. The law says do not covet, and sin says, ah, coveting. What do you covet? And this is, this is what happens in your brain. This is what sin starts to do when you hear do not covet. Sin stirs up in you the thought, what, what do I covet? What do you want that you shouldn't want? What do you want that isn't yours? And that's what you start thinking about. That's what sin does in you to make you think about when you hear don't covet. Now, how many times... Anybody ever been around wet paint with a kid? What's, what do you tell kids? Wet paint. Don't touch it. And they look, and they know that they shouldn't. But man, they're thinking, well, well, why not? Right? Why can't I touch it? What would it do? I, I bet it feels funny. Um, I've never felt wet paint before. But it's sticky. It kind of makes me mad that Mommy said I couldn't touch it. Why can't I touch it? I should be able to touch it. It's a free country. I'm going to make America great again. I'm going to touch this paint. <laughs> I can touch it if I want to. Sin takes God's good command and twists your mind. It twists your heart, your feelings, to make you do the very thing you have been told that you shouldn't do. And even though it's to your benefit to not do it, sin makes you want to do it. And you want to do it really, really bad. That's the effect of inborn, original sin in our lives. It takes what is good for us and makes us think it's bad. And it takes what's bad for us and makes us think it's good. That's sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment to produce in us all kinds of sins. Now the last sentence in that verse says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now what's that mean? Again, it's really a pretty simple concept. Where there's no restriction, there can be no offense against that restriction. Everybody's sitting in a chair. What if I said, don't stand in the chairs? That's a big one at our house. 
You're thinking, well, why not? Because I said not to. It's best for you to not stand in the chairs. Chairs are designed for sitting. So where there's no restriction, there can be no offense against that restriction. You probably weren't thinking I'd like to stand in this chair before I said don't stand in the chair because there was no restriction against it. But man, when I said it, you started thinking, well, man, I, I don't know. I could see better. I'd be taller than everybody else. That's a good feeling for me. My brain goes that way because I'm not used to that feeling. Apart from the commandment, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Where there's no restriction, there can be no offense against that restriction. Now that's not saying ignorance makes it okay to do things that are wrong. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying if someone doesn't know that killing people is wrong, that it's okay to kill people. Rather, it's saying if there had never been a law established, there can be no transgression of that law. There are laws about killing people. Whether you have heard of them or not, it's wrong. And if you kill people, you will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law if justice holds true. So this is not saying ignorance of the law makes the law lie dead. That's not what it's saying. Here, in this sentence, the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul that if there was never a law proclaimed from God, there would be no sin. If God hadn't said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then it wouldn't have been sin for them to do it. But He did say it, and so their doing it was sin. Sin has no power. Sin is dead if there is no law. You with me on that? Pretty straightforward. Now, I'm going to take the next two verses together. 9 and 10. I was once alive apart from the law. Now we just saw that sin was dead before the law. Well, there's no law, there's no sin. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And what I think Paul is saying here, Paul's telling his own story, and it's everybody's story. Before a knowledge of the law, we all think we're all right. I'm a pretty good person. I do nice things. I might mess up every now and then, but all in all, I'm as good or maybe even a little better than the other people I know. That's what we think before the law comes in. And unfortunately, the unregenerate person, somebody that's not born again, that's their idea of being alive. I'm pretty good. This life I have is pretty good. I feel good about it. Or even if you don't feel good about it, you're like, well, but I'm still better than some people. But then we hear the commandment. We hear of God's law demanding what? What does God's law demand? Perfection. Sinlessness. And it shows us that we are actually dead spiritually. It shows us that we cannot attain to that. It shows us our utter poverty to please God. And it arouses in us, the law does, a desire for sin like we've never known before. We were doing sinful things before, but we didn't see them in light of God's law and God's perfection. And then it was pointed out that it was sin. And oddly enough, it became even more desirable to us. That forbidden fruit became literally irresistible. Sin came alive and I became totally unable to deliver myself from it, totally unable to resist it. How many times have you felt that in your life? You know you shouldn't do it. Mom and dad have said, don't. But you're like, man, I, I really, really want to. And I know I shouldn't, but man, I just, I just, I can't help myself. I'm going to do it. Mom told me not to eat the whole row of Oreos. I know she said that, but man, they're so good. I can't help myself. That's what Paul's saying here. Sin came alive and I died. I became impotent, not important, 
I didn't have any power. Sin became the power that was operating in me, and I started doing the very thing I know I shouldn't do. Now listen, that is huge for next week. So tuck that away. It was pointed out that it was sin, and oddly enough, it became even more desirable to us. It became irresistible. Sin came alive, and I became totally unable to deliver myself from it, totally unable to resist it. You know you shouldn't, but you just can't help yourself. Let me tell you why that's going on inside of you. I'll tell you in three letters. S-I-N. Sin in you is why that's going on. Sin is why you just feel like you cannot help yourself. I can't help it. I've got to do this. That's sin. So the commandment of God sent to show us the way of life, sent to, sent to show us joy, sent to show us freedom, proved to be what? Death to me. Goodness gracious. I don't know about you, but I feel that so much. Those times when I'm staring temptation in the face and I'm going, I know I shouldn't, but man, I really want to. That's sin. Anybody ever not felt that? Good. Good. You're all sinners. You're all perverted. Good. Next verse. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the main impetus of all of this is sin. Sin, again, said to be seizing an opportunity through the commandment, which is the same phrase he used in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So you came into this building through a door, right? Sin saw a door into your life. And what was that door? Through the commandment. The law, listen, the law proved to be an open door for sin into your life. Stay with me. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. Sin made me want what I knew I should not want. Sin deceived me. And as a result, through the law, sin killed me, rendered me powerless against it, and rendered me lifeless to the law. Tell me how familiar you are with this thought pattern. I want to do it, I know I shouldn't. I want to do it, I know I shouldn't. I can't help it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I do it, I do it. Why did I do that? What is wrong with me? I knew better than that and I did it. I saw back there that I shouldn't have done it, but I said I wanted it. I don't really want to do that. And I get there and I did it and I get it on the other side of it and I'm going, why did I do that? I hate myself for doing that. That is sin deceiving me. And through it, through the law, through the commandment, do not covet. Okay, I won't covet, no problem. Oh, I want to covet. I'm coveting, I'm coveting, I'm coveting. Oh, why did I covet? I shouldn't have coveted. I know I shouldn't covet. Guys, if that's not, if you're not familiar with that process, I'm thinking your heart's not beating. I feel it. I feel it every day. I feel it when the alarm goes off and I know that I should get up. I'm going, oh, I don't want to get up. I'm going to turn the alarm off. I'm going to get back in bed. And then I get out of bed. Why did I lay in bed so long? I shouldn't lay in bed so long. I mean, really, it starts every day at 6 a.m., this process. As a result, through the law, sin killed me, rendered me powerless against it and lifeless to the law. I was in bondage to sin and the law couldn't help me escape, but it actually became, the law actually became the very weapon used against me to imprison me. Sin says, aha, you shouldn't covet. You're going to covet. I'm going to make you want to covet. I don't want to covet. Yes, you're going to covet. I don't want to covet. I'm coveting. I'm coveting. And so I feel like I'm in prison. It's what sin does with the law. Uh-oh. Let me go back. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. 
So the law was sin's weapon. Does that make it bad? Is the law sin? That's what Paul asked us back in verse 7. By no means was the answer then. And the answer here is an implied no when he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it's righteous and it's good. It's not the law's fault that sin deceived me and killed me. Now when we get into verse 14 and beyond, we'll see that the law is spiritual and that's good, but not when we're not spiritual, but in the flesh. But here, it's simple enough to say, by this verse, show of hands, if you think the law is bad, raise your hand. That's right. If you think the law is good, raise your hand. Some of you are on the fence. I get it. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. The problem is not the law. Which brings us to the culmination of our message in verse 13. Did that which is good, by the way, which is the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law kill me? By no means. Anybody ever seen that phrase before in Romans? Yes, you have. Like six or seven times. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So, the natural question is, so was it the law that brought death to me? What's the answer from the verse? No. Again, as so many times before, the Holy Spirit through Paul vehemently yells no to the thought when he says, by no means. No. The law did not bring death to you, by no means. It wasn't the law that brought death. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Now what does that mean? Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I realize that I put this up there twice. And I apologize for that. I want to illustrate what it means that sin produced something in me. Now listen. Everybody, everybody has natural desires. Right? I have them. You have them. We all do. Those desires in and of themselves may or may not be bad. But the law comes like a magnifying glass and shows us that so many of our desires are actually sinful. Like here, desire for something is not bad. I desire lunch today. Okay? Let's say that little jewel is lunch. But what if that lunch is on somebody else's plate? That desire, which is good, Hamlet just takes it. That's what he does. He just walks over and takes it off your plate. Which is sinful, by the way. <laughs> if your lunch is on somebody else's plate, that desire for lunch becomes envy or covetousness. You see what I'm saying? So the law shows us, oh, I want food. The law says, but that's somebody else's food. So you can't, you can't want that food. You're like, well, I do want it. And I am going to take it, he says. <laughs> so, a desire for something actually becomes in us envy when the law shows us that it's envy because we want it because it's somebody else's. Now, what happens is the law comes and it turns out that so much of what is going on inside of us is sinful. And listen, big statement, before we were born again, we are slaves to sin. And we are unable to do any righteous deed. Filling our hearts, our heads, our hands, and our lives with sin. And the law comes in and shows us, man, we are just swimming in sin. That's what the law does. And it looks like this. Sin moves in and uses the law to not only show us sin, 
but to magnify and multiply sin using the very law that was sent to help us. I like the watering can illustration here. Watering can's good, right? It helps you take water to your flowers. But what if you're watering the weeds? Is your flower bed going to grow? The weeds are going to choke out your flowers. And what sin does, sin uses the law to water itself, to make it grow. So it uses a good thing to magnify a bad thing. The law was sent to give life and direct us in righteous paths, but sin uses it to serve its purposes. Let me show you what this looks like in Scripture. James 1, 13-15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when? When he is lured, lured and enticed by his own desire. That desire is sin, which you'll say. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is what it looks like. That's some vicious human head-eating plant. I don't know what that is. Crud. That ain't a shade tree, y'all. That's a monster that's growing up to consume you. So sin used the law to help it grow. Sin used the law to magnify itself so that it might consume you. Sin encompasses, encompasses us. Sin eclipses us. Sin encloses us in death. And such is the nature of things for you, for me, for the Apostle Paul, and for everyone. Which brings us to the end of the verse that we were in. And then directly out of that to our application points. Look again at the end of verse 13. In, starting at in order that... in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God set this system up this way? All of this happened in order that we might see the truth that sin is utterly despicable. Listen, we have a bad habit of making friends with our sin. It's like a familiar friend. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to. Me and this guy, we're going to run together. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to. And we start to like it. The commandment came, and sin took advantage of the law and the commandment so that we might see that sin is really bad. Sin's yucky. Sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All of this happened in order that we might see the truth that sin is utterly despicable. And I want you to get a hold of that as our first application point. Sin needs to be seen as sin. And it needs to be seen and known as sinful beyond measure. The little sins, the big sins, sin. People, I want you to listen to me. Whether you know Jesus here this morning or you don't, sin is not all right. It's not okay. Ever. Never. Period. If ever we were to look to the law of God, as believers specifically, it should be to see that sin is not ever acceptable to God. It's never okay. What we said before the music, God is holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. And His righteous, perfect law serves to show us that. Now remember too, back in uh, Romans 6 and 7, it says that we died to the law so that sin might not be able to kill us with the law. 
We'll look more into that at the end of chapter 7 in a week or two. We don't look to the law to save us. We said that earlier a couple weeks ago. But we look to the law simply so we can see how sinful sin is. And it is. And in the words of verse 13, sin is sinful beyond measure. It's not okay. It's not a pet. Which leads us to application point number two. And here we'll circle back to our introduction. What two words do we define at the beginning of the message? Sovereign. Perverted. Okay. Anybody connect those dots yet? Or you just forget about being perverted altogether. Let me put it this way. Sin has a way of perverting the issue of sovereignty in our lives. Who did we say was sovereign before we started singing and while we were singing? Who's sovereign? Thank you. God is sovereign. What sin does is works to make us sovereign of our own lives. And that sovereignty, us being sovereign, us thinking we have the right, we can make our own decisions, we can do what we want to do, is perverted sovereignty. Now remember, perverted means to turn away from the intended purpose of something and to do something just because it's wrong. And in the case of sovereignty, we want to be sovereign simply because we know it's wrong to be sovereign. And what sin does is try to convince you that it's okay to be sovereign. Listen, young ones, teenagers, the culture is screaming at you that you can determine what is right and wrong. The culture is screaming at you that you can determine what gender you want to be. That is sin. You are not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. And when you live in a place, in a time, and in a mindset that says, I will determine what is right for me, that is perverted sovereignty. And that is sin in you, creating that mindset. I'll turn to Tim Keller again to drive this point home a little better. This is what he says. We have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and of our lives. We want to be sovereign. Every law that God lays down is an infringement on our absolute sovereignty. It reminds us that we are not God and prevents us from being sovereign to live as we wish. In its essence, sin is a force that hates any such infringement. It desires to be God. What was the first temptation from the serpent in the Garden of Eden? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And he goes on to say, That was the essence of the first sin, and it is the essence of all of ours too. Therefore, he says, Since the essence of sin is, is the desire to play God, to have no infringements on our sovereignty, every law will stir sin up in its original force and power. The more we are exposed to the law of God the more that sinful force will be aggravated into reaction. End of quote. So in application here, we have to choose between a perverted sovereignty in which we say what's best for us and what we desire and what we want, or the perfect sovereignty. Not the perverted, but the perfect sovereignty which is God being on the throne and determining for us what is best and empowering us to live in that direction. And that's all good and great if you're a believer because we can, as believers, choose to walk in active obedience to His sovereignty. But whether you are a believer in Jesus or an unbeliever who's not following Jesus, we all have one issue. And that's our final application point. This sin, this utterly sinful sin, this destructive, death-producing force that perverts sovereignty is not some ethereal spirit somewhere out there in the world. The world will tell you evil sin is simply the absence of good. No, it's not. Listen to me. 
everybody in this building. Sin is in you. Non-believer, you don't believe in Jesus, you haven't been born again, you have indwelling sin. And in your unbelieving state, you are sold into slavery to that sin that is in you. You need someone with a capital S greater than you, greater than your sin, to deliver you from your indwelling sin's power. And that someone is Jesus. Run to Him. But that's not all. Believer, sin is in you too. But, you may say, I'm blood-bought. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. And you would be right to say so. And as such, your sins are forgiven. The body of sin has been done away with. That judicial decree that shows all of the sins that you've committed. But please hear me say this. Believer, born-again follower of Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you still have a sin nature. Sin is in you. And it will be until you die and or see Jesus face to face. That sinful act that you committed, believer, hear me, was your choice. The devil didn't make you do it. You willfully chose to submit yourself to sin's perverted sovereignty in your life. When you were saved, listen, believer, when you were saved, God forgave you for your sinful acts. All of them, past, present, and future. But He did not take away your sin nature. How's that sit with you? Wouldn't it have been better if He had just took it away? Take away the desire to sin, God. I want to please you. That's next week. You will always have to face the prospect, believer, of perverted sovereignty. And you will always have to seek God through His Word, through His Spirit, His people, so that you might walk in perfect sovereignty. So therefore, the call for application here is to fight sin with all of His might so that you might honor Him rightly as sovereign in your life. The law came to show us the holiness of God and sin hijacked the law and produced death in us. Now, since we're born again, we can choose to yield to the sin within us or we can repent of it and move away from it so that sin might be seen as utterly sinful before becoming a sinful act in our lives. We fight sin so that we might not commit sins. But can't we go on committing sins, walking in our sinful nature since we're under grace? May it never be. No, 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 pal, no. No, <laughs> may it never be. The Holy Spirit said that way back in Romans 6. And why? Because we, listen... We died to sin. Now you got to connect that dot from way back in chapter 6. And I would encourage you to go back and read chapter 6 in conjunction with chapter 7. Though sin is in us, and it is, we died to its power over us as believers. You have to know that. You have to believe it. You have to reckon it to your account. And then you will do it. Walk in perfect sovereignty, knowing, believing, trusting, and loving God and His will for your life. Believer, you have an option. You have a free will now that you're born again. Choose perfect sovereignty over perverted sovereignty and walk in newness of life in union with Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. So let me recap our application points and we'll be done. Application point one was recognize sin as utterly sinful. Application point two, and this kind of breaks up 
the next two break up into unbeliever and believer application points. As an unbeliever, you are sold into perverted sovereignty. You are a slave to sin and selfishness. But as a believer, you can choose to walk in obedience to perfect sovereignty with God seen as your ultimate ruler. So application point one was recognize sin as utterly sinful. Application point two was choose to walk in obedience to perfect sovereignty. And point three was recognize everybody sitting in this building, that sin is in you. Unbeliever, recognize that sin, forsake it, and die to it by calling out for deliverance in the name of Jesus. Believer, recognize that sin is in you and fight it in the perfect sovereign power of God Himself. Psalm 1830, I keep coming back to it. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Run, Christian, into the perfect sovereignty of the God who gave His Son for you and for your sins and live in victory and obedience over the utterly sinful sin that lives in you. Let me pray. God, I pray that You would open our eyes this morning to the sinfulness of sin. I pray, God, that You would help us to choose perfect sovereignty, Your perfect sovereignty, walking in Your will and in Your power. And may we never lose sight of the fact, God, may we never, ever, ever forget that until we are glorified with Jesus, when we are resurrected with Him on that last day, until that day, sin dwells in us. Utterly sinful sin dwells in us. May we choose You over that sin. May we fight that sin, starve that sin, and walk in victory and obedience over that sin in Your perfect sovereignty. We need Your help and we are thankful for Your help, God. Thank You for sending the law to show us how sinful we are. Now may we walk in newness of life. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? (laughs) So awesome. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.